We are, uh, we are um, now in the middle, of, no, not in the middle, we're just starting, just starting a um, series, and we're going to do the book of Haggai. And uh, I love this little book, it's, it's, it's very short, it's only two chapters, it's going to take us two chapters at most a year. Uh, it, it, <laughs> now, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it probably in about four weeks, and uh, it just has some great stuff. One of the things it's interesting, I was doing a lot of studying and reading in the past few weeks, and um, I was reading this one guy, and he said, we are in, he, he said he believes we are in the golden age of biblical research with archaeology and different types of things like that. He's saying we are finding out more and more how the Bible is true, more and more about the historical accuracy. And I've talked a few times about the historical accuracy of the four Gospels and how it is astounding. And if you want a book on that, it's an easy read. I can get it to you. Just let me know. But also in the Old Testament, it wasn't that long ago uh, when I was in grad school, five years, six years ago maybe, 40 years ago. Okay, 40 years ago. Um, uh, I, I read, I was, some of my reading assignments was of 20th century theologians, some, uh, some conservative, some very liberal. And, and one of the common themes of, of the liberal theologians was the Old Testament is basically made up. Those kings that are in the Old Testament, they're not real people. That was just made up. This, all this stuff is just made up. And what has happened in the last 40 or 50 years is we are, uh, archaeologically, it's been astounding what we're finding out. That, that the Old Testament, those kings are not made up. They used to say David was made up. And then, of course, they found a thing that one of the Egyptian kings wrote about King David. And then they used to say that Solomon definitely was made up. And this person was definitely made up. And, this, and we're finding more and more and more that... that the, the Old Testament is a historically accurate document. You can trust it. You can trust it. And, it, and this is one of those books that uh, archaeological findings and historical findings has validated in a huge way, uh, along with lots of them. And uh, this is the, the book of Haggai. And I'm going to read to you the, the first chapter. It's 15 verses. I wanted to get somebody up here to read it, but this is one of those ones that nobody wants to read because there's names in it. All right, so I'll read it. it and beginning in verse one, Haggai is uh, chapter one. And uh, if you have a Bible, I can tell you it's easy to find Haggai. Uh, this is the oldest Bible I own. I've had this Bible for about 40 years. It's been rebound twice. And when I look at this Bible, almost directly in the middle, there's a white streak of pages. Pages that are not smudged, not bent, not hardly used. There's Haggai right there, right, right in there. That's in that section, you know, that we don't read a lot. And uh, so you're going to get through Haggai in the next four weeks. This will be good for all of us, all right? In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty said. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but you're never satisfied. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are cold. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, which each of you is busy, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the lands and on the mountains and on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. All right, so you notice one thing that is just right through it, what the Lord Almighty says. This is what the Lord Almighty declares. This is what the Lord Almighty declares. And so God is speaking to these people. He's talking to them, and, and he's talking about what I call kingdom priorities. What is kingdom priority? This is very important because it's going to tell us what they're doing and what we should be doing. This is a summation of what the book of Haggai is. Haggai is about what it is to live for God's kingdom wholeheartedly with everything we have in the time we have left on the earth. This is what it's about. This is what we're going to see over the next four or five weeks or so. This is what's going to be impressed upon us week after week as we look at this passage. This is what Haggai is about. And we must allow this book to point us to God and to Jesus. We must allow the Word of God to help us recalibrate our lives if that's what needs to happen. But first, we have to review some history. Yes, yes, history, maps. You guys are so excited, I can tell. Yeah, okay. So, we're ready for history. Here we go. First of all, Way back in the book of Exodus, when the people, God was bringing the people out of Egypt, he gave them a warning. He warned those people that if they forsake him and they went back to idols, they would end up back in captivity just like they just were. He told them. He didn't say, I'm going to make you go to captivity. He just said, this is what happens. You run away from me. You worship other idols. The one who has brought you out, the one who has saved you, you're going to end up captive all over again. I'm warning you. And here's the deal. God called his own shot, right? Have you ever played horse? Played horse with a basketball? I'm hoping you have, because <laughs> I got I'm using it as an illustration. You play horse. I can remember when, when we were kids, we would play horse, and a, and a kid would shoot, and, and, it would, and it would swish, and the kid would get, ah, swish, and go, no, you have to call that. You have to call swish for us to have to do a swish. And so I got up there, and I, I, um, I'm left-handed. And so I got up there and I said, okay, 15-footer, bank shot, left-handed, like that. And they're like, oh my gosh, you did it left-handed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what happened? I told him, I called it. I called it. This is what God did. God says, I called this on you. I warned you ahead of time. You, if you do this, this is what, for, what will happen. 
Swish, he called his shot. And this is what happened. The people started getting into idols. They started worshiping other gods. And what happened? There was a basically short story, almost like a civil war. And the kingdom of Israel divided into two. The green is the northern kingdom, which would, in those days, then they would call Israel. The, the, the orange is Judah, the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom tended to not go as quickly and, and as wholeheartedly into idols as the northern kingdom did. And so the northern kingdom, uh, it was around 700 B.C., Assyria, and if, if just above where it says Damascus in the top right, when you go past that a little bit, you'll hit Assyria. And Assyria was the, probably the greatest power of the world at that time. And Assyria came down and it conquered the northern kingdom and, and took many people. And what, what often would happen is they would take uh, like half the population into captivity. And they would leave half because you still want the land to be farmed. You still want to get tribute. So leave half, and then they brought other people in to occupy that. And so what happened is the northern kingdom became, the Jews would call them, half-breeds, Samaritans. That's what they became, and because that, that's what the Samaritans were. They were the mix of the northern kingdom and these other people are coming in. So when Jesus, if you, if you read your Bible in the New Testament, and you hear Jesus saying something, and people say something about the Samaritans, that's who they're talking about, what was left from the old kingdom. But the southern kingdom still remained. And about 150 years later, Assyria was conquered by Babylonia. And the, Bab the Babylonians came down and they finished the job. They conquered Judah. They took hundreds of thousands into captivity. And they led them a thousand miles away to just like nothing, just way out. It's like if we were conquered and they made us walk all the way to Kansas. This is about how far it was, so that we'd go, oh, this is a terrible trip, and look, at the end, we're in Kansas. If you're from Kansas, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Some people get born in better places than others. That's the way it works. Okay, so then God told them, he told them, look, I warned you about this. He even told them before they were conquered, if you would repent, if you would repent, we, I can save you. Come back to me. But this is what he told them when they were captured. He told them, I'm gonna bring you home. I'm gonna bring you home. This is gonna be a span of years, not that long, and then I'm gonna bring you back and retake this. It's gonna be, because this, this is your land that I gave to you long ago. And so in Haggai, this is what's happening. The promise of being brought back, this is, this is the fulfillment of that promise. There's four books that talk about this. Haggai and Zechariah, they talk a lot about rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, it talks a lot about rebuilding the city and the walls. Ezra talks about rebuilding people. It talks about more like a spiritual restoration that goes on, although they all dabble in all of those things. So 50,000 people were allowed to come back to rebuild the land. And the idea was there are certain things we want you to get done. The whole nation of Israel commissioned these 50,000. There are certain things we want you to get done so that then the rest of us can come, more can come. Things have to be ready. But what was the key thing they wanted done? They wanted the temple rebuilt. And this is very key because we don't necessarily quite understand what the temple meant to them. We think almost like a church. Like if there was a disaster and, uh, and this church crumbled down, right? We would be like, well, we have insurance. It'll get rebuilt. You know, it's, it's going to be okay. It's not... For them, no, this is something that's, this, is, this would be catastrophic. This would be incredible. They look at the temple as a key to their lives and they want the temple to be rebuilt. 
Doesn't mean they don't build houses. Doesn't mean they don't start plowing the land and getting the land ready also. Doesn't mean they don't rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But it's the number one thing they want done is to rebuild the temple. Why? Because that's like reclaiming who you are spiritually. Putting God back to the center of their lives. This is what the temple meant to them. This is paramount to them. Without the temple, they're just another people group. The name, to them, the name of God and their very existence as the people of God is wrapped up in the temple being rebuilt. And so this temple then would become a beacon to Jews all over the world. Come back. Come back to the land and come back to God. So you got to understand, this is huge to them. This is huge to them. And they start strong. We know this from the historical books about this. They start strong. The foundation is laid. Um, it's the same foundation that will be there in Jesus' day. Now, Herod comes along. They, they, they end up rebuilding the temple. Herod comes along and tricks it out even more and, and makes it bigger. But the main foundation is this foundation that, they're taught, that is being laid here in the book of Haggai. Here's the problem, and we get this from the other books, and there's hints of it here. The problem is their neighbors, the Samaritans. The Samaritans don't like the idea of them rebuilding. They don't like the idea of Jerusalem being rebuilt, of the temple being rebuilt. The Samaritans have moved on. They've decided that there's a mountain that's where they worship at, and that's the only place people who believe in God can worship at. So if you rebuild the temple, it's a threat to us. And so they declare, you're not, you're not going to do this. And there, there's opposition. And they start causing trouble. There's some persecution. And Ezra tells us that the children of Israel got scared. It became hard, and they quit. They quit working on the temple. So for 15 years, and this is where we pick up in Haggai, for 15 years, they quit working on the temple, and they concentrated on their homes. And they concentrated on crops. And they concentrated on making money more and more me, me, me. This is what happened. So Haggai comes as this prophet and he sees that they have very nice houses and the temple's in ruins. And so God begins to talk to them. And here he starts and he, he's talking about kingdom priority. So I want you to see, first of all, there's an accusation that's leveled. God accuses those people who are followers of God. He accuses them of something. And he says this, in the, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel and to uh, uh, Josedach. And this is what the Lord of God Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now, God's, God's, he's giving them an accusation. He's telling them something. He's saying, look, you're saying it's not time. All right. As leaders, why does he go to those two men? They're the leaders. One of them is the governor. One of them is the high priest. He says, I'm holding you as accountable as leaders, but also the people accountable. I mean, this is the thing about being a person. People all the time want to have power. People all the time want to be leaders. But just understand, when you get power and when you become a leader, there's responsibility that's involved. There's accountability that's involved. And God is getting a hold of these two people. And he's saying, look, Something has to be done here. Now, one more historical aside, and then uh, that's the last I'll give you, all right? In 250 BC, and, th and this is important for a lot of reasons, 250 BC, the Jews translated their, their uh, Hebrew Old Testament, their whole Bible, we call it the Old Testament, they translated it into Greek. There was a lot of Jews who were being raised all over the place. They didn't speak Hebrew or they couldn't read Hebrew. So they translated it into Greek. Now, this is very important for one reason. It is this. 
Hebrew can be very difficult to translate and understand because it's a, wor- it's, a, it's a language that words can flex and have a lot of different meanings. When you translate it into Koine Greek, which is a very exacting language, what it does is it tells us what they thought the Hebrew words meant. Right? And that's really key. And this is why it's key. God says to them, he says, you're saying this, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. When they translate it into uh, Greek, they used the Greek word kairos. Now, the Greek has two words for time. One is chronos, like a chronometer we talk about. What is that? That is tick, 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 time is moving. Here's time, boom, boom, boom. What is kairos? Kairos means there's a moment in time that suddenly has meaning, has potential, has power, has purpose. It's a special moment. And so if you look at chronos, tick, 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 tick. Kairos is like this, powerful moment, powerful moment, powerful moment, like that. It's a moment that suddenly, and so what are they saying? They use kairos here. God is saying, you're saying this moment is not an important moment, so we don't have to build. That's what he's telling them they're saying. This is very key. You will find in your life, if you look back in your life, you will find Kairos moments. You might not have recognized them at the time. Times where it was an incredible coincidence that you showed up at a certain place at a certain time and yet something very favorable happened. Times where you saw God do something very powerful or or, uh, unexpected. Those are Kairos moments. We have Kairos moments. Here's the problem is sometimes we don't notice them or nobody tells each other about them. So I wanna tell you about a Kairos moment in this church. And I'm a little hesitant to tell you because it it, it involves me, but also it involves everybody. Okay, I got a a letter not too long ago from a lady and she said, I'm getting baptized. They asked me to write out my testimony and I've written the whole testimony out. I wanna share it with you. You can share it with anyone you want. And it's long, but but part basically she just says, I was an atheist. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my late 20s. I was an atheist my whole life. I was anti-God. I was anti-Christian. I didn't want to have nothing to do with anything like that. Uh, I live in Illinois, and all of a sudden, I went through this breakup a number of years ago that was very difficult. And so I came to Newport News, Virginia, to spend Christmas with a friend who I was reconnecting with. And on Christmas morning of 2018, she said, my friend said, let's go to church. And so kind of on a whim, we went to First Church Ministries. And she said, God had been working through various people I've been sensing in my life. Almost, you know, this scripture we just, the scripture we just read can be so powerful. You eat and you're not filled. You drink and you're not satisfied. You've put money in, in bags that have holes in it. What is he telling them? He's going, everything doesn't quite do it, does it? It doesn't quite do it living apart from me. And she was saying, this is how she felt. Nothing was quite doing it. And so we, ended a, we attended a Christmas service. And the sermon was not anything I expected because it was concerning the genealogy of Christ, something that could be, right, incredibly boring, right? Yeah, that was my sermon. Um, she said, but suddenly in the genealogy of Christ, there were four women who were colorful. Tamar, who pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab, 
who was a prostitute. Ruth, who belonged to a group of people who had mistreated Israel terribly, and most Israelis hated Moabites. And Bathsheba, who was involved in a terrible situation. And she said, I looked at these people that were in Jesus' genealogy, and the pastor just mentioned they were there because God wanted them there, because God loved those people. And she said, I'm one of them. She said, all of a sudden it hit her. I'm one of them. I've got a past that I'm ashamed of. I'm just like they are. And she said, I am convinced that God's timing was written all over that moment. Kairos. Kairos. A moment in time that you may not recognize, but is incredibly powerful in the moment. And she said, the power of the Holy Spirit testified to me in that sermon. That night, I laid in bed, and I asked Jesus to be my Savior. She wrote, that was four years ago now. I'm no longer restless. There's no more deep pit. Identity crisis is not something I experience anymore. I don't feel obligated to label myself according to worldly terms or identify according to standards uh, that everyone else has. I know who I am in Christ, and nothing can take him away from me. You see, I was not good without God like I thought, because no one is good but God. All the passions and desires that brought me temporary satisfaction are now meaningless. I now see God's plan and his redeeming love. It has not been easy. I can still struggle all the time about my desires, but they have changed and they continue to change. Although I still experience mental health issues, Jesus is right there with me in the thick of it, reminding me of who I am, a child of God, bought by the precious blood of Christ. I am no longer helpless. See, that's a Kairos moment. But let me tell you something about it, because the whole thing you can say is, you can say, well, Bob, you did, it was such a good sermon. No, I went back and it wasn't that good. It was, it was all right, right? It was all right, but it doesn't matter because God was in it, right? What happened? What happened? That morning, people set up chairs. Coffee was brewed. Snacks were put out. The church had been cleaned. You know, just all these little things, these little things, they build to a Kairos moment, and God says, bam, I work in that. I work in that. That's Kairos. Understand that. And here's what's happening. God is saying, oh, you're saying it's not Kairos. It's it's not a moment full of potential, not a moment full of possibility, not a moment for anything great for us to rebuild the temple. And so he's He's, he's telling them, this is what you've done. And what are they saying? If you think about it, what are they saying? They're saying, it's, it got so hard, it got tough. And so they said, it must not be God's will to rebuild the temple. We've changed our minds. It's not God's will anymore. They blamed God for them quitting the job they were called to do, the number one job. Number one, build the temple. Also, rebuild the city, plant crops, build houses. They flipped it. And... They have the audacity to blame God. Oh, that's so crazy. And yet, here's the thing. That's what I do. That's what we can do sometimes. We can work it around where somehow it's God's fault that we're blowing it. And that's what they did. And then 
I mean, the, the sarcasm, God lays it on them right here. Um, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? And they use that same word in the, in the Septuagint, kairos. Oh, so you mean it's the special moment for us to trick out our houses. That's what you're saying. This is what's important. Not, not, not what you came here for. This is the kairos time you're all about. It's you. It's you. Whose kingdom are you focusing on? That's what God's asking them. Yours or mine? And the, the key there is paneled houses. That's really key. And here's why. Well, first, let me say this. God is not anti-house, okay? And God is not anti-paneling, although maybe he should be, right? No, no. I'm just thinking of that old, that old cheap, dark paneling that used to be in the, and it made all the rooms seem like little caves. yes. Anti-paneling there, right? yeah, that's me. But this shows something about their priorities. Here's why. Where Israel is, when I showed you that map, let's get it back up. Okay, in the orange, they're in the orange. In fact, they're uh, right towards the top of the orange where it says Jerusalem, all right? That's an arid land. There's no forests in Judah. There's no forests in the green, right? The forests, are at the, see the word Phoenicia at the top? That's where the mountains are. It's, it would be what, Lebanon to us uh, in that, that kind of area. That's where these unique trees that are so beautiful and, and so good for woodworking, cedar trees. They're up in Phoenicia. That's where you get the paneling. In Israel, in Judah, I should say, Judah, everyone there, it's just like, Jesus, here, here, another aside for you. It says Jesus is a carpenter. Listen, I'm sorry for all you carpenters. He's not exactly a carpenter. He, it, it, the word is technon, uh, tecton, and, and the word means stonemason. Now, they didn't really have carpenters. The stonemasons did carpentry, but they just didn't have a lot of carpentry to do. The houses are made of stone, right? And so that's what's typical in that area is stone. So to have paneled houses is to have incredibly expensive houses because of the expense of going hundreds of miles north up into the mountains, buying a section of trees, harvesting those trees, sawing them into usable portions, dragging them hundreds of miles back. It's fantastically expensive. It's very, very expensive. And this shows us something about their priorities. We're talking about kingdom priorities. This shows it because they have gotten this cedar wood from Lebanon, from Phoenicia, very expensive. They're spending money. They're spending hours. They're spending energy just blinging out their homes. While God says, and the first thing you came for is just a pile of rocks. You're not... You're not working on my kingdom. You're working incredibly hard on your kingdom. Now, again, God is not condemning houses or wealth. That's not the point. The key here is it's a heart issue. And that's the, that's the issue with everything, right? With houses, with wealth, with everything. It's a heart issue. Wealth is not evil. The love of wealth becomes a real problem. 
And this is all about what's going, out, going on inside their hearts. It's a priority. And priority is always an issue of the heart. Matthew 6, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So God's accusation rings out. He says, your name and your kingdom are more important to you than my name and my kingdom. The whole reason I brought you here. God's kind of reminding them, right? He's reminding them, you, you were in captivity and I brought you out. I've done it twice now. Are you gonna listen to me? Are you gonna do what I say? Because I, and, and this is all bound up in what we talked about a little earlier, because God is saying, I love you. I love you. I want what's best for you. Trust me on this. This is what's best. So we had the uh, accusation. Now here's the admonition. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Consider your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but have never had enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, but only to put them in a purse with holes in it. He says, consider your ways. What does that mean? Stop and think about what's going on. Get outside of yourself and consider the bigger picture. You know, that's the problem sometimes. We're trapped in the small picture. We think only about what's going on with me and everything that's immediately around me. Oh, this is happening. This is happening. This is unfortunate. This is all that kind of stuff. And God is saying, get outside of that and let's get the big picture. Let's understand what's what's important here more than all these just these little things consider your ways and that word for way is a word that can literally mean set your heart on consider what your heart is on and so here in, in, in verse six i believe i think this is i think this is metaphorical i mean some people say it could be literal and it could be but i think it's metaphorical this is that idea because jesus kind of uses this metaphor sometimes too you know you eat and you're never satisfied it literally says, in your eating, you are never satisfied. In your drinking, you're, you're drinking and drinking and drinking. The word there is this idea of multi you're drinking and drinking and drinking, and you're never filled. You put on clothes, and you're never comfortable. And you have this money, and it's never enough. You're never satisfied. And he says, you should sense this. Something is off. Something is missing. You can have a lot and yet feel like you never have enough because it simply becomes more, more, more. Me, me, me. And in verse seven, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Now, God says it twice, and remember, this is that thing in, 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 in Near Eastern cultures. If it's said twice, there's a special heavy emphasis on this. Consider your ways. Consider what your heart is on. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. He says, you need to change. You need to change. And how's that change? You turn and do something different. So begin to get your priorities right. How? Start again. Go get the wood for my house. And then he tells them, there's been some, evidently lately, they've been struggling some. He says, but you expected much. But see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains of ruins, each of you, while each of you is busy, busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. And I called for a drought in the fields and the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people, livestock, and all the labor of your hands. You feel like something's wrong. Why are you never satisfied? Why? Because of me. I'm telling you, 
I'm not, I'm trying to direct you and move you back to where you should be. This word, it says you are busy. This word means to run to, to put your total focus on. He says, you're busy with your houses. You focus totally on something that's not that important. And now he says, I'm trying to bring you back. Are you wondering why it's not raining? He says, it's me. Now, this is where people can really struggle, right? It doesn't mean every time we're struggling, it's because God is punishing us or correcting us. It doesn't mean that. Sometimes our own sins catch up to us and we struggle. And it's totally our fault, right? God didn't have to do anything to make it happen. Sometimes it's other people's sins and we get caught up in it. We get the part of, part of the, 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 just of how sin goes out and, and affects people, all right? Sometimes when we struggle, it's just because we're in a world that is broken and we struggle. But sometimes it's God. Sometimes God steps in and says, man, I love you too much to let you go down this path. I'm going to redirect your path. I'm going to work on you. That is why God says two times in there, consider your ways. He's getting them to try to understand the big picture. Think this through. What's going on here? They have prospered for years and now suddenly they're experiencing drought. And God is saying, I did this to get your attention. It's all to get you back, back to me. God doesn't want us to drift and focus on ourselves rather than on him. Why? Because he is where salvation is. He's where joy is. He's where contentment is. He is where life is and hope. And when we pick our own agenda, choose our own agenda, we're picking less than the best. And our aim is too low. The worst thing you can do with your life is be totally committed to it instead of God. Our culture tells us, have it your way. Our culture tells us, you're the most important. You're number one. And Jesus calls us in the exact opposite direction. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What is he saying there? He's saying, if you choose me, if you focus on me, if you pursue me, that's where you'll find life. If you choose to just focus on your life and pursue for your life, it'll never quite be enough. It'll never quite be enough. And this is what's happening to them. So consider your ways. He's saying it's a call to repentance. But what do you do when you sense this? What do you do if you're feeling like, wow, I can relate to that call? And so we get to the response. Now, I know you thought this would be another A, Let's go with accusation and admonition. When I went to, to seminary, they told us always make them like that. It's very important. So one time I turned in a, a joke sermon to a professor, and the, it was aerate the Frisbees, attack the farmers, you know, and then I put, I think, arrest the Farquhars or something like that, you know, just, just to get it A-A-A-F-F-F. I didn't hear because this is the response of God. This is how he's just responding then Zerubbabel, son of, the response of the people, I should say, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant 
of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the people, because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. And Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. What is their response? Their response is repentance. They obeyed God. Their hearts were stirred. What is repentance? I'm going this way, and it's the wrong way. So I stop and I turn around. And it's not just enough that I stopped and turned around. Then I go this way. You see, repentance is a decision to stop and a decision to go, to start, to continue, whatever it is, to go the right way. This is what repentance is, and this is what has happened to them. They made a decision, and then there was action. And it's interesting here, it says the fear of the Lord. They feared the Lord. And I think, I know a lot of people sometimes struggle with this. Like, what does that mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of God? Like, God is so big and mean that I'm afraid he's gonna squish me with this, you know, with this giant hammer or something? Well, in, in the Hebrew, that word fear, it's a difficult word because it can mean a couple different things. This is, a, this is sometimes the difficulty. It can mean just straight out fear, or it can mean this incredible awe that makes you weak in the knees where you just go, this is so incredible. That it's, it feels a little bit like fear, but it also can just be full of love. In, in Proverbs, the Pro, they talk a lot about the fear of the Lord. I just want to read you a few of how it's expressed. The fear of the Lord diminishes self-centeredness, and it causes us to look to God. The fear of the Lord brings healing and refreshes you. In, in chapter 8, the fear of the Lord crushes pride and ignorance. Chapter 14 says the fear of the Lord produces confidence and courage, along with a place to hide a refuge. I take refuge in the fear of the Lord. Chapter 15 says the fear of the Lord is way more valuable than wealth and affluence. 16 says the fear of the Lord makes you turn from evil. 19 says fear of the Lord is where there is true rest and satisfaction of the heart. Chapter 22 says the fear of the Lord brings life and blessing and reward. The fear of the Lord brings life. So you see, that's the, the Hebrew, they're trying to express something here. And it's not this whole sense of that, that God is just somebody who bangs us on the head when he gets mad at us. No, it's something where God is so awesome. I love how C.S. Lewis tries to explain it when in, in, in the Narnia series when he talks about Aslan, the, the, the lion who is Jesus. You know, it's a, it's a picture of Jesus. And, and, and one of the kids goes, oh, it's a lion. They said, yes. And he, is it safe? No, he's not safe. But he loves you. He's not safe. He's not safe, but he's kind and he loves us. See, this is, this is what they're trying to express there. And so these people were overwhelmed with this awe and this wonder of what God is doing and what God wants to do. And so then he turns and he tells them, I'm with you. Think of what that means. I mean, if we can get that straight in our heads, that can change our life. When you go through difficult times at work, if there's a voice whispering in your ear, I'm with you. Difficult times in your family and there's a voice that's whispering, I'm with you. Difficult times wherever it may be, I am with you. God's walking 
with you. That's why they called Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. This is what we have. This is what he's telling these people. I know what the Samaritans are saying. I know what they've been doing. I know, I know the pushback that you've gotten. I know that it's scary and it's fearful. But you're doing my work. I walk with you every step of the way. And just Can you see now why when Jesus led that Samaritan woman, led her to a, a saving knowledge of him, this threw the disciples in such a crazy, because they've grown up on this. Those Samaritans, they hate us. And Jesus says, look, I'm with you. Don't fear. So now the question for us is this. So what? Nice story, bro. Love it, Bob. History, a little too much history, but still, I like the story. So what? So what? So what do we do? Well, now we are building a spiritual house. The Spirit of God lives in us, and we are now the spiritual house. We are building a spiritual house that will impact his kingdom, just like they were. We have been liberated. We have been rescued to live for him and his kingdom, just like they were. God is telling us, I am with you, just like I'm with them. So that means we have to do what God called them to do. Consider your ways. Give thought to the affections of your heart. Is there kingdom drift in your life? And I, I would encourage you sometime today, you know, you get a moment alone, maybe tonight as you're laying in bed before you go to sleep, consider your ways. Take a little time. Talk to God about it. Ask God, God, is there something? Is there something I'm missing? Is there something I haven't figured out? Is there something, is there something that I'm ignoring that I shouldn't be ignoring? Is there something I'm doing that I'm not trying to change and I know I shouldn't be doing it? Consider your ways. And then just say, God, okay, show me and help me with it. And then it might be something little. It might be something big. But God will work. I promise you, God will work. He'll begin to bring things to your, to your mind. He'll begin to remind you of things, to prompt you on things. Because this is what he loves. He loves to see his children grow and become more like his son Jesus and experience more of what he has for us. Because he's where the life is at. He's where the joy is at. He's where the contentment is at. He's where the meaning is at. He's where the purpose is at. That's where it starts with him, and that's what he wants for us. Because I said this earlier, but the worst thing you can do with your life is to be totally committed to it, to the exclusion of God. That's the worst thing. He has something. For each one of us. The fact that you're still alive on this earth, it means that God is not done with you yet. He's not done with you yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, book. As we see these people who are just like us, it is so easy for us, Lord, to be caught up in the comfort of the moment, to be caught up in the circumstances of the moment, to not want to endure difficult things, but just want to have an easy time, we fall for that so much, Lord. And that is not necessarily where life is. 
So Father, help us to pursue you. Help us to put you first, even when it can be difficult and uncomfortable. Help us, Lord, to be people who are willing to allow you to change our hearts from the inside out. And as you do that, as we even heard of this testimony of this woman today, Lord, you work, you work, and you cause growth, and you cause life in us. So we give you the glory, because you are a good God. In Jesus' name, amen.